Amen. Go ahead, have a seat. We're going to get ready this morning. There's a lot to get through. You can open up your Bibles. We're in Philippians 4, uh, and it's uh, chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Frank, for the past two weeks, has had maybe one or two verses. He gets on a plane this morning, and he leaves me with 13. So... Buckle up. There's a lot to get through this morning. We've got a lot to talk about. I'm going to start by reading the passage this morning, okay? It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only." Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus." To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this morning, this passage starts off with gratitude. Paul is so grateful that the Philippian church is renewing their thoughts about him, and now they're giving generously to him. The Philippian church had probably not really thought of or given to Paul in almost 10 years. And out of the blue, they send a gift to help Paul in his ministry. Paul is grateful, and his gratitude is evident in the beginning of this passage. Imagine with me. Paul must be sitting on a beach somewhere, he's got a cold Diet Coke in his hand, he's taken in the sun, and he's writing this letter, right? Not at all. No, in fact, he is in prison, right? Paul is on house arrest. He's chained by two elite Roman guards. He's awaiting trial for his life. The local pastors in the area have become envious of Paul's giftedness, and so they've resorted to a smear campaign. So not only is he held captive, but his reputation is under attack too. And on top of that, he's being charged rent for his own house arrest. Wait, what? That sounds like life stinks. He's stuck in a horrible place, and his tone is joy. It's empowered. It's excited about what he sees God doing. And he's thankful that God orchestrated the Philippians to think of him and send him money to pay for his incarceration. That's huge. His reaction is gratitude. 
So follow with me today. We're going to go through six key words. Yep, six. (laughs) Um, The first is gratitude. Paul chooses joy and gratitude in the midst of his surroundings. Second is contentment. So Paul goes on to say this, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul has experienced in the past riches, And now he's definitely experiencing less. He has every reason to grumble, complain, tear down, be frustrated, speak ill of others, but he doesn't. In fact, he says, I am content. How often does our life and our circumstance create our response? My diabetes is a mess especially this week. People are talking about me. I'm not measuring up to my expectations. Finances are a little rough. A few stressful friend situations. Your list could be much, much worse than mine. You've received a cancer diagnosis. Your child has medical issues and no one can figure out what's going on. You've lost a loved one. You're in an ugly divorce. You're failing at school. You're lonely. You feel misunderstood. The list goes on and on. You could be in prison. Paul has the opportunity to complain, yet he chooses gratitude, which leads to contentment. I came across this story this week, um, And it so clearly defines contentment. There's a speaker, his name is Bob Perks, and he was at an airport and he overheard a father and a daughter in their last moments together. And they had announced her departure and so she needed to go at the security gate. And so they hugged and he said, I love you and I wish you enough. And she in turn said, Daddy, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough too, Daddy. And they kissed, and she left. And so the man walked over to where the speaker was sitting, and standing there, you could tell he just needed to cry, right? And, and the speaker didn't want to intrude in his privacy or ask, but the guy kind of invited in, and he said, did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing it would be forever? And the man had to think for a second, and he thought of being at his dad's um, bedside as he left and went into glory, and he was thinking of all the things he said, and, and yes, he had experienced that in the past. And he said, forgive me for asking, but why is this a forever goodbye? And the man said, well, I'm old, and she lives far, far away, and I have challenges ahead, and the reality is the next time she comes back, It's going to be for my funeral. When you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. Can I ask what that means? And the man began to smile. And he said, that's been handed down from generations to generations. My parents used to say it all the time. And he paused for a moment and he thought about it. And he said, you know, when we say, I wish you enough, 
We were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. He continued, and and he's smiling, and he's thinking, and, and as if he's saying it completely from memory, he says, I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so that the smallest joys in life appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all that you possess. I wish enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. He started to cry and he walked away. Contentment isn't about having much or having little. Contentment doesn't come from living in luxury. In fact, no offense, but you all and myself have it good. Did you know that 815 million people are starving or malnourished? 41 million Americans go hungry every day. Did you know that 1.6 billion people live in inadequate or no shelter at all? Contentment doesn't come from living with little. Contentment is not related to your circumstances. The source of your contentment should and can be Jesus alone. I believe God uses the ups and downs to give us perspective, but overall, if your happiness is based on your surroundings and your situation, you're in trouble. If you've committed your life to Jesus, there's a joy that is incomparable, eternal, and amazing. You've been saved from an eternity of pain and suffering. There is a God who loves you enough to step out of glory. He stepped out of heaven to come and rescue you. It doesn't matter that your finances stink or that your health is poor. The ups and the downs of life are always going to be there. We live in a fallen world. And honestly, I think part of our issue as Americans is that our perspective is skewed. Your expectation for the most part is to have life fairly easy and carefree. Let's be real. No one in this room today is going to go a week without food. No one in this room today is going to go a week without a place to put their head. So when something bad comes, we sink. Stop focusing on the now. Circumstances are going to change day by day, good and bad. But our God does not change. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the great I am. And your joy is found in him alone. If you know Jesus and you are the Christian Eeyore, (laughs) repent. (laughs) Let me say this one thing too. Paul doesn't shy away. He's not being fake about this. It's known where he is and what he's enduring. 
but he communicates joy. I believe that's why one of the most misapplied scripture of the Bible is right here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This week in staff meeting, we found this. I thought I'd put it up here. It says, I can do all things through Christ through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) This statement is not saying that grandma can run down the court, leap, and dunk a basketball. Honestly, I was thinking about asking, bringing the basketball hoop down and asking someone to do that, but then I thought I would accidentally pick Joyce Bowen and she would dunk it. So, I didn't do that. No, it's not saying that you can claim Christ and fly and do something out of the ordinary. Paul is using this statement in your everyday life. He's saying, although life is really rough right now, or maybe although the past has been amazing, I know that my joy is found in Jesus. And I can do all things through Christ because He gives me strength to do so day by day. I wonder if Paul is communicating and writing this verse, if he's saying it over and over in his head as a self-reminder. Honestly, it's what we talked about last week with Frank. Think on such things. I know, I know, life is hard. Things may not be going right, but I have Jesus. I'm going to choose joy. And through Christ, I have the strength to do this day by day. So we've gone from gratitude, and it leads to contentment, And now it leads to giving. Yes, I said it, giving. Thanks, Frank. You give me 13 verses and you give me the dreaded church topic of giving. (laughs) See how this works. No, I'm not going to apologize for giving. It's in the Bible. God talks about it. And so we're going to talk about it too. (sighs) Giving. Why do we give? Why do we support the church or the work of the gospel? The Philippians gave sacrificially. They did not have much at all. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 1-3. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord." In their extreme poverty, they gave in a wealth of generosity. And think about this. Paul is in prison. I don't know about you, but if I'm thinking about where I'm going to put my dollars to advance the gospel, my first thought is not the guy down the street in house arrest. It's missionaries in the field. It's people like the Booker family who are getting ready to go in the field, or the Buntons who are thinking about going in the field. Look, the Philippians gave sacrificially so they could partner with what God was doing in and through Paul. If you're not giving either through service, finances, prayer to the work of the gospel, you have a consumer mentality. 
It's no different than going to Starbucks and expecting to receive a quick shot or a pick-me-up. You're showing up and you're expecting to receive. That's a consumer. And while it's not entirely wrong, we want you to receive here at Uniontown, you're not partnering in the work of the gospel. The Philippians are not consumers. They're co-laborers. They work. They make little. But then out of the little that they have, they dedicate some of their money to further the gospel. They put skin in the game. Look, Andy kind of mentioned this earlier, but I'm so proud to say that at Uniontown, we give 10% or more out of our budget to the work of God elsewhere through local and global partners who are working to advance the gospel across the globe. People like the Bookers and Getachew and all these other people. Why do we do this? Because we believe that God moves all over the world, not just in Union Bridge, Maryland. Could we use that $120,000 for programs, more pastoral staff, a bigger building for our growing needs, a better discipleship process, adult education, more local impact with our community? Absolutely. Trust me, it comes across my desk every day. The needs and the desires are endless. But sacrificially, we want to give to God's story on a global scale. While partnership involves more than money, money is important. You can't carry out the mission of God on well wishes. It takes intentional giving of time, money, and resources. So here's why this is the dreaded church topic. Because You're sitting there and you may be thinking, oh my gosh, he's just trying to manipulate me to give to Uniontown Bible Church today. (laughs) No. Listen, Paul answers it for me. I don't even have to answer it to prove anything. In verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift. Did you hear that? I'm not asking you to give to Uniontown right now. He wasn't asking for the gift. The Philippians just did it. They were in line with the Holy Spirit and they gave sacrificially to the prompting of the Spirit. He goes on in verse 17 and 18 to say, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What Paul is saying is that giving is an act of worship. You're taking part of you, part of your hard-worked money, part that you've gained, and you're transferring it to the gospel of Jesus. It's worship. You're freely handing over with no expectation other than that God would use the money to advance his kingdom. You're saying that the atheist down the street is more important than your fifth cup of coffee today. You're saying that the tribe on the other end of the globe who needs Jesus more than my kids need a fourth soccer ball. You're saying that your intention is to bless the poor in our community with the best answer to any problem, not money, Jesus. 
instead of taking that weekend away. It's sacrifice. It's worship. It's part of God's plan. And what's so cool is, Paul goes on to say, it's pleasing to God. Look, when the Bible says something is pleasing to God, we should run to make that happen. Are you running to give or to worship God with your time and resources because it puts a smile on his face? Look, I want God to smile, and I wholeheartedly fail at that daily. But it's my desire that he would be joyful with my actions. Every person I know wants to bring joy to their parents. Even people who have parents who have been horrible or abusive, there's a longing for acceptance or to bring them joy. You know, as a little one, Isabella, my littlest one, would crawl up into my lap and she would just stare at my face. And she would give me this look that just made me smile. There was safety and joy in all sides when she smiled, when I smiled. Don't you want that for the father of all fathers? As believers, our eternal occupation is to bring glory to God. Why not start now? Finally, we've had gratitude, which led to contentment, which led to giving, which led to worship, which now ends in faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the best definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The Philippians supplied for Paul's needs, and now he assures them God will supply all of their needs according to his riches in glory. First, he didn't say wants. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you everything in greed you desire. He didn't say the prosperity gospel. I'm going to make you a millionaire and make you happy. No. In fact, we just heard in much or in little, find contentment. He's going to provide for all your needs. And what's more amazing than that, God is going to supply every need according to his riches in glory. What is not owned by God? Nothing. Listen to these verses. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Ephesians 4.6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Hebrews 3.4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 1 Corinthians 10.26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Psalm 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does he mean finances only? No. He's saying every need. Listen to some of these promises of God. Isaiah 40.29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Matthew 6, 31 to 33, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run around after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Isaiah 40, 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. And finally, Mark eleven twenty four. therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So why do I say that this passage ends with faith? You may need faith today to believe that the promises of God pertain to you. One of my best friends in the world, Andy Whitfield, has said over and over and over, if people would just believe the promises of God, then we wouldn't have half the mess that we live in. From my perspective, my view of God is changing. For many years, I viewed God as this distant person who was horrified at me and about me. I didn't measure up. And my view was always negative. Instead of coming to realize now that God's love for me is vast. Yes, I screw up. And it doesn't surprise him. And while he's holy, he wants my heart. These are some things I wrote in my journal when I had some time when we were in um, Asia on a missions trip, and I wrote this. Just listen to the perspective shift. My God doesn't force me, but he compels me. My God doesn't just love me, he actually likes me. We've heard that one. My God doesn't sit in a distance, he wants to communicate. My God doesn't talk about me, he talks with me. My God doesn't have a list for me, but he has an itinerary. My God doesn't expect me to, but he anticipates I will. My God doesn't scold me, but he prunes me. My God doesn't just use me, but he serves me. My God doesn't push me, but he waits for me. My God doesn't need me, but he wants me. You may need a perspective shift. You may need faith to believe that the promises of God actually apply and pertain to you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Not the best, perfect version of you. He loves the messed up, screwed up sinner who's sitting in the seats right now. Listen to how Paul ends this letter to the Philippians. 
Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. First, let me just say this. He talks about members of Caesar's household sending greetings. Why would he do that? Because the giving has produced new disciples of Christ. See, Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with all the guards and law officials and people around him in house arrest, and there's fruit coming from it. Can you imagine with me, Paul just kind of standing there, totally chained to this other guy and sharing the gospel over and over. The guy's like, all right, dude, I got it, right? No, there's fruit coming from it. How cool is that? They get to hear firsthand of God's mighty plan. That's not promised to us, but in this case, they get to see the seeds planted and because of their sacrificial giving. Finally, he ends the book with the word grace. He started Philippians with greetings of grace, and he's ending with grace. Grace, or the Greek word charis, is defined as unmerited, undeserved favor. Why does he bookend with grace? Paul desires that you would experience not only the saving grace of Jesus, but also the sanctifying grace that this Christian life gives. Look, I don't know where you are on this journey with Jesus. You might be here today and you have no idea what I'm talking about. You could be on this walk with Jesus and you are really struggling right now. You could be on this walk with Jesus and you're flourishing. I don't know where you stand even just on the passage and the things we've talked about today. Maybe you need to work on being grateful. Maybe you need content in Jesus alone. Maybe you need to sacrificially give. Maybe you need to worship and please God with your resources. Maybe you need an increase in your faith today to believe the promises of God. Or maybe you need to work on the rest of the things that we've been learning through Philippians, things that Frank has taught us, things like having confidence that God is not going to let you down, that you're a citizen of heaven, so live like it. Stop whining and complaining. Don't allow yourself to build your own resume, but accept the resume that God has given to you. Forget the past. Reach forward and remember how you've been rescued. Rejoice in the Lord. Overcome anxiety by praying about everything and reflecting on Him. Look, if you're trying with all your might but you're not measuring up today, if you're failing on multiple fronts, if you can't break that habitual sin in your life, if your attitude's bad, if you're not giving, if you're not in content in Jesus alone, if you're not grateful, I know I don't live up to half these things. In fact, in some of them, I'm plain horrible at it. But Paul just reminded us to walk in grace. 
so this morning, as I close, I wish you enough. And do you know what our definition of enough is? It's Jesus. Listen to this. These are the I am's of Scripture. I am the bread of life. That's enough provision. He says, I am the light of the world. That's enough illumination. He says, I am the gate and the door. That's enough access. I am the good shepherd, enough protection and guidance. I am the resurrection and the life, enough power. I am the truth, enough freedom and stability. I am enough life, enough vitality. I am the vine, enough motivation for growth and fruitfulness. And finally, I am the alpha and the omega, enough for everything. And that, my friends, is why you can live more than happy. Why? Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder of grace at the end of the book and for this reminder that you alone are enough. That our happiness can't come from things and from circumstances, but that we can be content in the work that you did that saved us. Lord, I pray for the people here this morning. I pray specifically for those who are struggling with their walk with Jesus right now. And I pray for those that are in a great place, they're flourishing with the Lord. And I pray for those who might not even know who you are. God, would you use this time to help us to take that next step to live day by day to know that Jesus is enough. It's in the mighty, powerful, holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.